Barça. Welcome to the latest episode of The Book Club on Football Ramble Presents. I'm Kate Mason. I'm Jim Campbell. And today we're taking you on a journey into the heart of the Swedish underworld to understand how a promising footballer went from taking his team to the cusp of promotion in 2009 to being murdered months later at the hands of a criminal network whose influence on his hometown extends to this day. Kuri looked down at the much shorter Eddie, who, undeterred by the difference in size, returned his gaze and unleashed a torrent of abuse. You're behind the murder of Mohaned. I'm going to fucking hire people to take you out. I'm going to pay so much fucking money to teach you a lesson. This is a true story whose subject matter was so dangerous that the original publisher refused to print it and whose author was nearly driven out of her home by the death threats of a mob boss. But she persisted and when it was finally released in Sweden, the first edition sold out within a week and became the most popular book in the country's maximum security prisons. Now it's out in English to unnerve and entrance readers the world over. This week for Book Club, we're reading Follow Fucking Orders by Anne Turnquist. Curry ignored them as he had done for most of his life. The cops have always hated me, he says. And he drove his cousin to hospital, where the doctors did save his life. But nothing could fix the damage from one of the bullets that had burrowed into his spine, paralysing him from the waist down. When Anne started her research into the death of a star footballer and his brother, she could not know that it would lead to five years spent tracking down witnesses or that someone she became close to in the process would end up dead. All she wanted to do was understand how a quaint town near Stockholm had become the site of a bloody turf war and how one particular gangster now believed he ran the place. And I'm delighted to say in a first for book club, we have a crime reporter with us today, the author of Follow Fucking Orders, Anton Kvist joins us now down the line from Sweden. And thank you so much for taking the time to join us for Book Club. Yeah, no, thank you. I'm glad to be part of this. So, Anne, the book focuses around Satalia, the town I mentioned in the introduction, and it centres around the events that led up to the trial of, of the mob boss, Benahuri, who um, apparently ordered the execution of the best footballer in the local side. It, it, it was an extraordinary world to be involved in and it had huge personal consequences for you. Did you... At what stage or how much did you ever consider giving up on getting this book out there? Well, the, the thing is, I, I actually never considered giving up. Um, I had a, a, you know, I thought when I started this, I'm like, oh, a book is like a long feature article. This will take me six months. I mean, like laugh, <laughs> laugh out loud. Um, it's not. A book is a totally different beast. And it ended up taking like five years. But so I had more like three years into this thing. You know, I started with, oh, my God, why did these gangsters end up so, like, violent, you know, with a lot of empathy for them? And then three years down the line, I'm like, I know why they ended up uh, like this, because they're all a-holes. So it's more like, you know, I just got to a point where my curiosity about them was totally spent. But I, I'd gotten so far, and the story still fascinated me. So I just, it was more like taking a bit of a pause and, like, you know, reloading, getting some energy. But then I'm trying to remember, so it was, like, I was about to publish the book and then the mob boss whom you mentioned, uh, Bernard Curry, his family started ringing me and they're like, oh, what book is this? And I was a bit confused because he knew I was writing a boss uh, a book. But then I realized because he'd given me one initial interview and then um, after he was convicted, he didn't give me a second interview because, you know, I wasn't useful to him anymore. There was no chance of being acquitted. 
And because he's such a narcissist, he must have just assumed that like, oh, I didn't give her permission. So she stopped. Um, whereas, you know, and I actually got a letter from him in prison where he's like, I know that the constitution is really strong and that Sweden has one of the most solid press freedom laws in the world. I'm like, somebody did their research to see if they could stop me legally. Um, and then the death threat came, like the prison actually warned me. They phoned me, one of the weirdest phone calls in my life. And, you know, I think people are like, oh my God, are you going to publish it? And for me, it was more like, I've never wanted to publish it more. Like, not just because, you know, my personality is just like, I'm sorry, excuse me, who do you think you are? But also I was a journalist being threatened by a mob boss. And once you let criminals like silence the press, you're, you know, you might as well throw the constitution in, in, in the ocean. Mm. So the, the gang that you're talking about, and you obviously talk about throughout the book, they're, they're known as the network. Um, can you sort of, can you take us and the listeners through a kind of brief um, explanation of, of how they operate and how you came to be interested in them? Well, so they operate in this small town called Sotelia. It's about half an hour south of Stockholm. It's an old industrial town. Um, it's still an industrial town. AstraZeneca is based there. Um, it's very cute. It's old. Uh, but it also has, it's always had a lot of uh, immigration from different countries. And it has a very large and also very tight-knit community of people who are Orthodox Christians who came here from the Middle East because of persecution. Not always easy to be Christian in the Middle East. So it's, you know, in many ways, the community is lovely. Like people take care of each other. They're super welcoming. Um, but they also kind of like keep a bit to themselves. And if there's a conflict, they, they, you know, they call in a mediator. Um, the football player's brother was a very well-respected mediator. And, but what happened was, they also had like an informal kind of underworld, like an underworld economy, but as in like, if you wanted to expand your business, you would borrow money from a local community leader rather than the banks. And and you would have to pay it back. And that kind of worked for many years, but then, and then Bernard came of age. Uh, and I mean, my impression of him is that he's not just capable of violence, but actually really enjoys uh, violence. So they're loan sharks and, um, the demands became like unreasonable and, and the mother of three is in the book. I mean, her family were confronted when like Bernard and his friends just like pushed their way into their home and said, Oh, your son owes us the equivalent to a thousand pounds. And all of a sudden they were like, Oh, we need a uh, 30,000 pounds. I mean, they, that's not even reason. I mean, that's what kind of math is this? Yeah. I was trying to like convert it to percentage and just gave up. So like from a from a thousand quid to thirty thousand, and so what, it's just like an arbitrary sum, is it basically? They yeah. were like annoyed that he borrowed the money from like a rival gang, and like, you know, and he they'd been after him, and he's like, oh, I know Bernard, and he's like, how dare you drop my name? You know, it was just so much like honor and like reminding people who was in charge and the network. I mean, they took a lot of drugs, um, so I don't think they were totally in control of their senses um so that kind of stuff and, and that's also why people in the end just got really fed up because i mean what i mean could you guys like conjure up thirty thousand pounds in one week's time well jim could but i would struggle. <laughs> <laughs> i would struggle i've got to be honest so to dash your illusions there kate in my <laughs> lavish lifestyle but uh yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's unreasonable but surely surely they know that's unreasonable you know surely they 
Surely making the figure that high means they're not going to get the money. But the problem is, is what, but the, the problem is that they did. I mean, people are, so yeah. people would be totally desperate. Um, and, you know, the network didn't even have to, these are men in like their late 20s and like early 30s. And they're so known for violence. And um, so you just, I mean, you will, you will find that money. I mean, you borrow it mm. from friends, you, you sell stuff. I mean, in that family, the mother, mother had these gold jewelry that was part of her dowry once upon a time, you know, um, sentimental jewelry. And she sold that. And um, so what the mother of three, who is one of the main characters in the book says, it's just like they can demand this because people will find the money and people have found the money and they know this. So this is a core part of the book, isn't it? What you do so well is to trace this sense of obligation and the way that the, the power networks are built up uh, in this town. And is it is it that is it that fear of violence? Is that basically the main mechanism of control, would you say, Anne? Yeah, because, you know, they've kidnapped people, they've assaulted people. Um I mean, it's not like it's not like their propensity for violence is is news to anyone. And also, I mean, one thing you have to keep in mind uh, is that Bernard Curry is huge. He's like six foot three uh, and has incredibly broad shoulders. Um, he's an imposing figure. I mean, his, yeah, nick- they call him, his nickname, yes, yeah. his nickname no, go ahead. Is, is the tall one. Um, Al-Tawil, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. so in, in, in Arabic, Al-Tawil, I'm probably mincing the pronunciation, uh, means the tall one. But the funny thing is that the Swedish cops, all these like blonde, blue-eyed, you know, do-gooders were like, I'm going to help this town get over their woes. Um, they were like, they kept like transcribing it in like weird ways. So when you read the police case file, like they're obviously really struggling. Uh, and people had to explain to them, it's Arabic. It means the tall one. Um, and also like, you know, and, and it was used. I mean, like when they were extorting people, they'd be like, oh, you know, the tall one. They wouldn't even say his name because they didn't have to. Like Voldemort. Yeah. You know, actually, that's really funny because I, g- I gave an interview to the local paper, Sotelia, after one of my interview people, um, uh, well, this didn't go that well for her. Uh, and I said to the local reporter, I'm like, do you know what? I really hope that Voldemort is sitting in his isolation cell and feeling a bit of shame about this. But I bet he isn't. And I go back, <laughs> I went back to my job. I was working for like public service radio at the time, like the equivalent to the BBC. I went to my boss, Karen. I'm like, Karen, do you think maybe it's a problem that I called Bernard Curry Voldemort? <laughs> and she's like an old, she's like my boss. I mean, she's an old crime reporter. So she got it. And she's, she's like, oh, me, she's like, it's not like I wouldn't employ you because you said that, but I think you might want to consider how much you want to provoke them. <laughs> you know? So in this, in this town, obviously, you, you've described it as being a sort of in, a very pretty industrial town with uh, a lot of kind of complicated social makeup. But within the town is um, Asiriska, which is the, the local football team who, um, and again, I may not be pronouncing that right, but they, they seem to be a little bit of a beacon for people of an Assyrian background. And Eddie Musa, the, the, the player in question, he w- was, was murdered, um, was a bit of a symbol for that community as well. Is that, is that fair to say? No, no, it's totally fair to say. I mean, so it's pronounced Assyriska because an Assyrian person okay. is Assyrisk in, in Swedish. Um, I mean, they were doing so well. So, so the, the first generation moved to Sotelia in uh, the early 1970s. Um, and they formed their own like football team. And, you know, and they're super successful. They're like great businessmen. They built like their own churches. Um, 
And then they established a studio. And it was just like, you know, they had like a muddy pitch around the corner for a while, uh, which is still there. Um, but now they have a, like a huge stadium. Um, and uh, I am going to get to my point. <laughs> no, and the thing is, so I was actually living abroad when they made it up into like the Swedish equivalent of the Premier League. Uh, and I remember being like, wow, that's really cool. I mean, like they were underdogs. I mean, they really came from nowhere and all of a sudden they're in the top league. Um, then they didn't manage to stay there. Uh, this was 2005, if I remember correctly. So what happens and what's in the book is that they're actually, they're, they're in the second division and they're slowly like actually playing so well that they have a chance. And there are two, um, there are two uh, um, playoffs. Is it called playoffs? No, it's not called playoffs. Mm. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's like it's a playoff. It's a two legs of a playoff. Yeah, it's exactly. Yeah. It. So, so the first leg, he's running the game, Eddie Musa, isn't he? Yeah. So they have these playoffs, and um, there's a picture in the book which I love because people keep saying that they keep mentioning that he's really short, and they keep mentioning that he's really fast. Uh, and there's this picture when he's playing. They're playing against their local rivals um, who have these like very dramatic red, this red and yellow strip. And he's just surrounded by defenders. And these defenders look like giants compared to him. But he's in this, like, he's just about to, like, maneuver the ball away from them. And he's just, like, he looks so powerful. Like, it's almost like this David Goliath picture. Um, mm. And I think, you know, this thing about a picture says more than a thousand words. This is rarely true. But sometimes you get a picture where you're like, damn, that's it. So he was great. He was injured, however. Um, so he was he had to be subbed off in the second um, playoff, uh, which meant that it was a bit difficult to get into um, the Premier League. But people loved him and he was really charming. And, you know, I've spoken to people who grew up with him and she's like, you know, we used to go to summer camp and we'd sit up late and he'd be telling jokes and everyone would just be like laughing. And um, and of course, he was complicated because he was a bit macho and a little bit vain as well and um, a bit flirty, which not everyone appreciated. Um but then what people didn't know is that he was also kind of he was also kind of a loan shark, but like low level at the beginning because he would gamble at night. And if someone lost a hand and ran out of cash, he'd be like, oh, I'll spot you 100 quid. But if you win the next hand, um, you will have to give me back like 200. I mean, that's a return rate of what? 100 percent. So mm. um, and Bernard Curry, who essentially had the monopoly on loans within ironic, sarcastic quotation marks, um, didn't appreciate this. And then things just kind of, well, basically they went to hell within the space of six months. There was one murder, then there was a retaliation drive-by shooting when Berno's cousin is paralyzed. And then there's a, like, you know, the, the other retaliation where Eddie Musa is gunned down with a, with a Kalashnikov. I mean, he's like shot 17 times. The cop, the first responder, um, no, so one of the first responders who had to like physically hold Eddie Musa's mother back from running to the crime scene um, had basically heard from the first responders inside the venue that you could barely recognize him. Like he was just like torn to shreds. Uh, and he was basically like, you know, I can't let a mother see this. Um, and Eddie's big brother, the, the respected uh, mediator that I mentioned was also there and uh, they shot him in the throat. So that's just like a plain execution. And the thing is, for me, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't a crime reporter at the time, but this was the first time I heard of 
like a Kalashnikov, like the semi-automatic Soviet slash Yugoslavian rifle being used. And, you know, I grew up in the 80s when everything was like cute and they were so prosperous and we were like the social democratic utopia. And the local newspapers had a headline about like a bike being stolen or like a kitten <laughs> getting stuck in a tree. And I remember being like, I'm sorry, when did we start murdering each other with Kalashnikovs in Sweden? <laughs> you know, obviously like something had changed during the years when I was studying and working abroad. So I, I, and I'll just briefly say that the thing about this book as well, it's like I was... I was abroad, including the UK, for a long time, for so long that like, writing and researching this book was almost like me rediscovering my country, a country that had changed when I was away. And of course, these communities that you're talking about, um, many of them are immigrant populations coming in and creating their own environment uh, within this, what you say was previously a kind of quaint Swedish town. But, and when, and when you're saying that, certainly in the UK, that would probably have a different um, vibe about it. You know, there's always this concern about talking about the, the idea of immigrant populations bringing in crime and this sort of thing. And, and you talk about Sweden being this like utopian setup. Does it have the same, was it being approached in a similar way? Do you remember? Were people saying, oh, you know, this is the result of um, well, the thing is, I think that this case, and it ended up being the biggest ever investigation into organized crime in Sweden, um, really, I mean, it was kind of new in the way that the, the prosecutors during the investigation, also when they brought charges, talked a lot about this community and how they you know, kept to themselves. But they also talked about it with a great deal of empathy, as in like, we understand why people do this because they were treated so badly in the Middle East. And also during the Ottoman Empire, um, like a hundred years ago, when they just basically, you know, killed countless uh, members of ethnic minorities, um, a lot of pe people lost like their entire family. I mean, they are the survivors of genocide. Um, and also, as people talk now more and more about how um, trauma it's like passed down through the generations. I mean, they are a people scarred by genocide and persecution. Um, so the thing is, so I've been abroad for so long and I heard the prosecutor's argument and he was talking about the Middle East and my, and my family actually lived in the Middle East for a long time. So I was like, oh, that's really interesting. I think it also helped me report because I've never been intimidated or felt like uncomfortable in that town because I'm just so used to like Middle Eastern culture. Um, but I didn't understand at the time that it could be seen as controversial because I, I hadn't been home. And the thing is, you know, when people always accuse like the media being like politically correct, I've always denied it. And what I've slowly come to realize is like, the reason I've denied it is because I'm not politically correct in, in the negative sense of the word. I'm not scared to talk about things. Uh, I'm also not scared to say the, like the wrong thing because either I genuinely don't think it's wrong and can explain why, or if I am wrong, I'll be like, oh, okay. Like I have no problems apologizing if I misunderstood something which is uncommon in Sweden. Swedes never apologize. So, so I think, but then it took a while. Like, I think they talk about it now and Sweden's been under attack for being so politically correct and naive. And, um, you know, the way some people talk about us abroad, like it's like they honestly think that they're like Islamist gangs roaming the streets with semi-automatic rifle, like raping blonde women every second. Like that's not the case. Um, so it's been a very like black and white picture, but I think 
So what we've done, which some people might think is like the, like not very, like the non-courageous way out or compromise is we talk about cultural values and integration. Um, and Sweden also knows that like, like we have a housing shortage. And if you just shove tons of people into these, like not very well-maintained areas with this, basically, I mean, the housing looks like something from the Soviet union, like these horrible, I mean, like it's not social housing, but kind of, and it's just unattractive and alienating. So Sweden knows that like, this was possibly not the best idea, but the segregation, the actual geographical segregation, which in Stockholm is ridiculous, um, also means that a lot of people who are in power, like you know, civil servants and politicians, they just don't understand the problems because they don't see it. And I have friends who are just like, oh, I've never been there, like a suburb, and I've been everywhere in Stockholm. But people are like, oh, I heard it's a no-go zone. I'm like, well, I went there last week, so I had no problems. <laughs> I had no problems going there. Saying that, I think it's easier to move about as a woman in some situations because you're perceived as non-threatening. Tell me more about that. Did, sorry, sorry to cut in, Jim. Yeah, tell me more about that. Does, is that something that you thought was useful in the when you were researching this case? No, I, I didn't think about it consciously. I was actually being interviewed by another crime reporter when a member of the audience asked this question and I'm like, oh, I never reflected on it. And she's like, no, but I really think so. Um, because like you're welcome into situations where you would never be welcome. And for people who belong to more conservative communities, I mean, like you're polite to everyone, but you really are like super polite to women and you take care of women. And I haven't analyzed whether it helped, but I'm not gonna like say they didn't. It sounds like the community you were speaking to have a, a have a natural mistrust of of authority and you you speak about that quite a lot in the book and how that was very very difficult to it, it help the network because it meant that people wouldn't report them to the police yeah. because there was a culture within those communities of of dealing with things in-house effectively which allowed them to to practice extortion so from your perspective how do you approach interviewing people who have that mistrust in the in the in the first place but also where you know they're afraid of retribution must have been very difficult to get people to speak. You know, it wasn't that difficult to get people to speak because I knew quite a few people in the community that kind of were like, you know, they're like, I vouch for her. She's, she's cool, you know. The mm. problem came about, and specifically also after the death threat was like made public when I decided to speak about it, uh, was that a few people tried to pull out of the book. So basically, like, interviewing people, not a problem. And everyone, the thing is, I, because these are sensitive, sensitive issues, and uh, not just dangerous, but like sensitive. Um, I always let people read their chapters because um, I don't want to be, I want to be like, not just a good journalist, but a good person. Um, so everyone had actually signed off on their, on their chapters, but two people, one was like, I can't do it. I've been awake all night. She emailed me at like 4 a.m. and said that people, people were talking about the book in the town and she was really concerned. Um, so I found a compromise that she was happy with. And then another person tried to uh, pull out and I just basically spoke to him. And what happened was that I removed one of his quotes and he wanted to be anonymous in certain sections and that's fine. But like, and his response, which I didn't take personally because I understood that it came from fear, uh, was to get like really angry with me and said I had misrepresented him. And I was like, but actually this, you've read this chapter, like I added some stuff and I can take that out, but so that's that happened um and i'm just trying to think so yeah but no that was a problem i just think that like like i never want to be like a manipulative reporter um 
because basically being a good reporter is like being a normal good person like you know if i met you for the first time when i knew i don't know something really like difficult in your life i wouldn't be like hi nice to meet you can you tell me about the time blah 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 like i would <laughs> i would get to know you first because it would be rude and insensitive to do that and like the rules for journalism are different and i just try to you know i with the second book uh it was about a witness that was murdered like his father sms'd me the other day and like thanked me for being so sensitive towards like the victims of crime and and said he thought the book would help his uh, grandkids like deal with their trauma um so i just figure like if my kid had been murdered like how would i want to be treated i also feel a responsibility especially now when people are so critical of msm mainstream media whatever that means to just be like 100% legit and never act in a way that makes people question not just me but like the press corps because we need really to build try to build trust As the clock edged towards the 90th minute there hadn't been any more goals from either side and then the referee's whistle sounded. As extra time began, Passion sank into a kind of squat, a sort of prayer position. She stayed there for the first five minutes. Nothing. Then another five. Still nothing. With four minutes left and with a penalty shootout looming, Jonsson answered her prayers. The third goal in the 116th minute. This was it. They'd done it. They were going to stay in Allsvenskan. Passion flew to her feet. She hadn't been able to speak all day, yet all of a sudden she was screaming. She interrupted her screaming only to start laughing. Tears of joy streaked down her cheeks. Welcome back to the book club with Jim and me and today with Anne Tunqvist, the author of Follow Fucking Orders. Really appreciating the chance to sit with you today and thanks so much for joining us. Uh, I just had a bit of little feet, a little bit of fika in the break. Did you get your fika? Mm-hmm. Did you get your fika on? It's something I'm very, very drawn to in the course of this. Uh... Yeah, no, fikas are great. I had half an apple. That's not as exciting. Okay. I feel like when people hear like fika, they imagine all these like Swedes eating like Danish pastries mm. and drinking really expensive coffee. I had an apple. Incredibly unexciting. That is exactly what I imagined. I was slightly disappointed now. Anyway, we're talking today about your book, which is about the gangland murder of a promising footballer. So we wanted to talk a bit more about Eddie Musa because Jim and I kind of wondered if it was because of his sort of aspirational qualities as this really good footballer who was something in the community that this story got covered so much um, more broadly than perhaps it might have been, despite the um, fact, of course, that this was in a, a huge organised crime ring. But adding to it that level of like, I don't know, almost glamour, you might say, did that have an impact on how the story was reported? No, I, I definitely think so. I mean, Sotelia was always kind of like known as a bit rough, like bad things happened down there. Um, but there weren't that many details. I mean, the police had been trying to like, make things better for years, but there was never this like big targeted operation. Um, because I, so the brothers, Eddie Musa and his brother were killed just after midnight. Um, and I remember, so already in the morning, like if, if it, you know, CFAX is that on TV, like 
they had somehow like found out that it was a, a football player. So that was, you know, within less than a day that was known. Um, and, you know, it, because it took me a while to write the book, uh, I mean, the book was published like eight years after the murder. And if I mentioned it, people like wouldn't really know any details, but they, but everyone remembered that a football player was killed. So at the time the story came out, was it, was it a big deal in Sweden? Was it, would, would this have been one of those sort of inescapable stories that's on the front pages for days at a time? I mean, it definitely was uh, front page at least for one day. But also I remember when they, the funeral, like the newspapers did send reporters and photographers. Uh, I mean, there's a bit, a bit about the funeral in the, the book because there was just like, it was like a scene out of Sons of Anarchy, you know, because a motorcycle gang showed up and there was like police mm. helicopters and they were like civilian police officers trying to be discreet and totally failing just like you know loitering about with cameras because they're obviously like gathering evidence of who's there um so it was a bit of a spectacle uh, one of the people who who was there told me um and then this huge police investigation where they used a lot of wiretaps um took i'm trying to think so the the so eddie and his brother were killed in like first of july and they took like more than a year later to actually indict the suspects mm. uh, wow. to, to bring charges against them because there were so many of them there were 17 um so that was a huge trial so that was obviously like covered um and um but then you know what like media is like so there was this kind of like weird scandal because they were all convicted more or less but we have this system in Sweden where we don't have a jury of like professional or sorry, of like citizen jury members. We have lay judges that help the presiding judge and they don't even have to have like a, a legal background or like a law degree. Um, they're appointed by the local political parties. But I'm sorry, I'm being super nerdy. But the point is like they one of them had been during the trial also attending um, meetings when the police debriefed the local politicians about how the investigation was going. So that was a total conflict of interest. So the whole thing was a mistrial. And, you know, this trial went on for like months and months and then they had to redo it. So th then the story was just like, oh my God, like conflict of interest. And they were convicted again. And then, I mean, I was, so I reported from the, it went to appeal. So I went to the appeals court trial and there were only like three journalists there. It was me, um, the local newspaper crime reporter, and then another reporter who also wrote a book about this case, I think my book is better, but you don't have to tell him that. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, but, uh, you so know this goes out, was, yeah. <laughs> we'll just yeah, no, it's fine. I think, I think he knows that. I, I would add as a caveat that he's written a very classical Swedish like nonfiction book, which is just like chock-a-block with details. Whereas I, who was educated in the US, has have I've done it like American style, like narrative <laughs> nonfiction. You know, when you're actually. So I think the, the question of quality comes down to what genre one prefers. <laughs> <laughs> anyway <laughs> now you've just uh you know got the backups of all your colleagues perfect moment yeah, yeah no i i mean he's pretty chill his name is barish i think barish is cool with this glad to hear it okay so it was a long the point being that it was a long running case that went on and on and, yeah, on. and, the, and you know yeah and the news like you know news reporters move on to other things <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, but you were you were stuck into this and you were following it all throughout the appeal when it looked. Did it? I mean, you, of course, in the course of the story, you play it up. How likely it is that the, these guys might get away with it? How likely did it feel? I mean, I felt, I mean, this was the first trial that I really covered in depth. I'd been kind of a general news reporter before that. Um, so there was just, there were so many wiretaps, you know, so many conversations, so many like pull out quotes that obviously show that Bernard Carew is in charge. I mean, the, the book, the book's title, Follow Fucking Orders, is, is from a conversation where he phones his cousin who has the media nickname, The Torpedo, uh, and tells him, when I give you orders, you follow fucking orders. So, I mean, that's that's what he said. Um, but the thing, and they, there were, there was a lot of forensic evidence, but none of it was smoking gun quality. Because Curry was trying to say that he wasn't in charge, right? That was the way he was going to get out of it. He was kind of saying, like, there were other people who also had, who might have had both interest and capability of orchestrating such a complicated murder, because it took a lot of planning. Um, but, but, and, it, and they also said, all of them said like, oh, we, we sound really tough. Like all these recorded conversations, we sound really tough where we're always insulting each other's mothers and calling each other like son of a whore and, uh, generally being like quite rude and aggressive. And they're like, it's just cultural. And I remember thinking like, I'm like, there's not a single person in my book who belongs to the same community as you who would agree with it being cultural because they think it's rather embarrassing of course they could also just mean like the criminal culture so and and the interesting thing about the trial which which i think is in the book is just like i mean these like differences between worlds is very very apparent i mean all all the defense lawyers are white uh middle class or upper middle class um and come from like wealthier parts of sweden they speak very correct swedish um so there's like a huge class difference and, and and to go just slightly off on a tangent but tie, tangent but tying it to Britain there was this book called The Secret Barrister mm. remember that mm. uh, and that book also goes into these like huge um, like the class differences the people who judge and the people who are being judged so like Curry and his friends were just like you don't understand how we speak to each other and uh, there's no smoking gun and but the thing is that. One could argue it's circumstantial evidence, but like at some point, the sheer amount and therefore the weight of the of the circumstantial evidence becomes totally crushing, you know. And I mean, beyond reasonable doubts cannot only hinge on forensic evidence. I mean, and I, I've seen in Sweden is actually documented by researchers that the district courts uh, are becoming more and more likely to acquit people because there's no they call it like definitive technical evidence. And I, be, you know, sometimes I've like, you know, I've been sitting like reading it like a verdict and I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, for me, it's so obvious that this person has committed the crime. Mm. And of course it has to be beyond reasonable doubt, but, but sometimes it's just like, you know, you don't actually need DNA on a gun to prove that someone like was holding it when it was fired and killed someone. Mm. There seems to be um, a recurring kind of theme throughout the book, particularly later on as you're interviewing um, witnesses and the family members of the people involved, that people say there was too much focus on Curry in the in the in the investigation, and that there might be people that did escape justice by staying out of sight. And do you think there's a likelihood of that, or is that the local community believing the smokescreen that Curry himself was trying to put up? This idea that he wasn't the boss. 
No, I, I mean, I think I think they're correct in the way that if you follow the prosecutor's argument as well, that it's so entrenched. So, I mean, like, you know, let's say that it was me that lent money to someone who didn't pay back. And I just employed Curry to get it back by being like a fist wielding crazy person. Um, if I am a person who actually regularly lends large amounts of money to local entrepreneurs, I'm obviously like the, you know, the head honcho of a loan sharking operation, but you don't, you can't, it's difficult to target them. So, I mean, you could say that, I mean, <laughs> that Curry was just a contractor um, that, you know, like renting out services. So I don't, I've never seen any of them brought to justice. And the Swedish police often refer to like the pyramid of crime, uh, which is that, I mean, Curry and his friends were like the gang, like they were visible, they were out there, they were scary. But then you have uh, the people who are like, not even necessarily orchestrating it. I usually think of it as a business model and the easiest way is to talk about, about narcotics. So like someone has to import the narcotics, right? Very complicated, very expensive operation. And then, and this is kind of hilarious, but in a macabre way. So they just brought down this like drug ring uh, just like last week. And uh, they have these like depots where they have all the narcotics, but then you have to like get it to the, to the, to the retailers basically. So all these gangs are usually busy like shooting each other and being upset with each other for random bullshit. Um, they take out an insurance policy in a way because they pool their resources. And then all of a sudden the gang members are like, are they like, oh, we have to rent a van, high five. And then all these people who are actually rivals on paper are sitting there in the, in the van going like, oh, here's our roadmap and we have to drop off X kilos over here. And then we'll mm -hmm. take motorway number five, <laughs> you know? So, I mean, you just, I mean, the thing about mafia is I mean, it's, it's business. It's all about business. They wouldn't exist if like, they didn't have customers. And so I initially thought that Eddie Moose, when I first started reading it, I assumed that, that in some way Eddie Moose's kind of notoriety as a footballer was, was involved in how he caught the eye of this, of this local mafia. But is it more that he was trying to get into their turf a little bit with his small, tiny loan operation? Uh, I don't know how big it was, but we know we know of the gambling loan sharking. Um, the police always said that this was one of the reasons for him being killed. Now, his sister was just like, they've never proved it. And I understand her saying that in her grief. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, but you're not going to like launch a criminal investigation about against a person who's dead, you know, <laughs> like, mm -hmm. so like there was no incentive for them to look into it further. But I mean, all my interview people have said this. Um, Eddie's the cousin of one of the people in the book and she knows she knows everything about it. And so I can't conclusively say this was the case, but it, it also becomes one of those beyond reasonable doubt things because when enough people say it, they might not be able to like, you know, show a bank account statement to be like, look, why, where did these X million kroner come from? But it also like, you have to be, okay, so rumors, you have to be, sensitive to the fact that sometimes something that's incorrect can become an established truth, uh, which is why I haven't, I haven't put everything in the book that I have heard about Eddie, because um, I just decided that like, I don't, ha this is not valuable enough for me to spend X days on to corporate. Mm -hmm. So, but he, I mean, he grew up with Curry. They were friends. I mean, they all knew each other and obviously things just turned really sour. And I mean, Bernard's cousin being paralyzed in drive-by shooting is really not going to, you know, 
make things simmer down <laughs> in the community. The police and the invest said they'd never had to protect so many people in connection with one investigation. It was around 20 families. Yeah, and, and some of the families are quite big. Um, so it, it's like the witness protection um, program. And you can do different things. You can help people move and actually like change their name and change their like, I mean, the equivalent to a social security number. So, or you can just make sure to like scrub all information about them from public records so they're impossible to find. Um, so the, yeah, they broke a record. They've never had to help that many people. I mean, they helped me too after the after the death threat. Um, I obviously haven't changed my name, but I, I mean, I'm impossible to find in public records. The only thing that this affects in terms of my life quality is that I, I, the, the tax agency, there's like a small unit in the tax agency who's allowed to work with us people with hidden identities. So every time I have a tax question, I'm like, hi, it's me again. They're like, oh God. <laughs> this woman more <laughs> It, you know, it is kind of like I needed help and I just emailed one of them the other day and I'm like, yeah, I don't have to sit in like, you know, in a telephone queue for two hours like everyone else in this country. Sounds a bit as though you're making the best of this, though, because you had to like leave your job at one point after he made uh, made death threats to you, Curry. Yeah, no, because I was the beat reporter for the local radio in his hometown, Sotelia, and they were just like, I mean, there was no way for me to to stay there. I mean, even if he was just making a threat to scare me and had absolutely no intention of enacting it. Uh, I mean, he told people to go talk to me and basically bring a gun and threaten me. Um, it's impossible to, to know. And as like the head of security at my job said, he's like, in this kind of situation, coming in second place isn't an option because second place is like you being dead. I'm like, great. <laughs> so, I mean, they took it seriously, but I mean, I kind of logically knew that he would have very little to gain from actually killing me, but just this tiny, tiny possibility, this, you know, and also the feeling of knowing that people in these criminal circles were talking about me. And small stuff, like someone tried to log into my like Facebook account. I mean, it sounds so innocuous. I mean, it's like not, I mean, I'm sure that's happened to you, but when it all happens at the same time and you like end up being a bit paranoid, you're like, you know, looking over your shoulder. It's, uh, it's quite taxing. I mean, it's been a while now and I, I'm i like mostly fine about it, but it was possibly the worst period of my entire life. Is it something that you would kind of, that you were concerned about before it actually happened? Because you, you met Corey in person, didn't you? You saw how imposing he is. You saw firsthand the influence he has. And it's, you know, it, it, it takes a certain element of bravery to even, to kick a hornet's nest like that. And was was the eventuality of, of you being threatened something that you had kind of prepared for in advance mentally? Do you know, I was worried, um, but I was mostly worried about the people whom I had interviewed. So there's like two main people in the book. One's a woman and one's a man. And she's also kind of innocent in the way that the, the debt that they were trying to enforce from her was not hers. It was her brother's. And they don't go after women. You know, they have this self-image of being so respectful to women. I, uh, this is a podcast, so your listeners can't see how I'm <laughs> rolling my eyes. But um, I wasn't worried about her, but I was worried about him because I was just like, I mean, he has moved. He has a new identity and a new, you know, everything. But I kept, there's this scene in The Sopranos, you know, the TV series, where Tony Soprano is just out driving. He stops at a petrol station to fill up his car. 
And by accident, he runs into this guy who like testified against him a few years ago and he just strangles him on the spot. So that scene was like playing on repeat. And, and also, so, I mean, I live in a flat and, and if people, like if someone came in through the, like the, what's it called? The, the door downstairs, you know, from the street, like it would wake me up. And then I would lie awake and analyze the sound of the footsteps on the stairs. After the death threat, I actually bought a new, like heavy duty uh, door, like not a front door, like not a, it's not bulletproof, but it's like thicker and it isolates from the sound. Um, so, I mean, I was just worried about him. And then obviously I was worried about me too, but I never thought they were going to like shoot me. But what I was, what I was worried about was that they would show up, like force their way into the house, like take out a gun and like place it demonstratively on the, on the, on the table and just like have a talking to, uh, or worst case scenario that they would like shoot me in the knee. I mean, the thing is, I mean, I mean, I don't know if you agree, but I at least think I'm a, a person with a bit of like humor. And I, but I, so when I thought about this possibility of them shooting me in the knee, I remember thinking, well, at least, I mean, because I played quite high division volleyball for years. I'm like, well, at least I'm not like a volleyball player anymore. So I won't like fuck up, <laughs> fuck up my volleyball. But that's the nature <laughs> of threats, isn't it? Is, is yeah, perhaps realistically or, or in truth, you didn't fully imagine that anything terminal, I don't know, could happen to you, Anne. But it's the fact that there but is the, the sense of doubt. Of yeah, that's the scary thing. That's, that's in fact, in one way, that's how it all worked. That's how he tied everyone to him. No, exactly. Because it's just, it's, it's, it's just because your body goes into um, fight or flight mode. I mean, it's not, it's not like you have control over it. And I was actually just helping this this NGO. I was like kind of an informal consultant. They were drafting a list of like tips for employers uh, to think about if their employees are threatened or just, you know, in comfortable situations. And and it's a long list. Um, but one of the things I said was just like, there were some people in the newsroom who were like, oh, you know, it's, they were like, just like, they were trying to comfort me. They were trying to comfort me by saying like, oh, don't worry. It's not going to happen. They have nothing to gain from it. And I knew they were trying to be nice, but it's just like you feel really belittled because um, it's almost, it, it almost feels like they're saying, oh, you have nothing to worry about. But, you know, I was having problems sleeping. I was losing weight. Um, and uh, and also truthfully, so I didn't live at home for a while and then I moved home. And by total random coincidence, a friend of a friend needed somewhere to live. So I was like, oh, well, come and stay with me for a while. I was thinking like a month, maybe two before he finds a new flat. He lived with me for a year and thank God he was here because I came home to someone. We didn't talk about like Curry all the time, um, but just not living alone was, and I remember one like Friday he was out late and I was lying in bed. Just, I was like so tense mm. and I ended up having to, I went for a really long walk because I just needed him to be there. You said that you never considered not publishing the book. Do you think it was, I mean, this is a conversation you have with the, one of the main witnesses at the end of the book, isn't it? Do you think it was, do you think it was worth it feeling this way? I mean, um, I think fear is like pain. It passes. Um, and you have, a, you know how like, so, so this is maybe a weird parallel, but you know how people like give birth and it's the worst thing ever. And then they have another kid and you're like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> I know, you know exactly I mean? what you mean. 
<laughs> so it's like, you know, they can say that it's the worst pain ever, but they're not living through the pain right now. So you just do it again. I mean, I wrote a, another book. These people in the second book were nowhere near as scary as the network and query, but, but I waited for a while before I did like wrote the second book. But I think that was more because I, I mean, I was exhausted after this first book and the death threats and blah, blah, blah. I actually worked part-time for a while because I was on sick leave. I basically went to my doctor and was like, hi, you're going to put me on sick leave because if you don't put me on sick leave part-time now, you'll be putting me on sick leave full-time within a few months, which doesn't benefit society or the social security agency's budget. You know, I was like totally prepared. Oh my goodness. It wasn't like, that is like, like doctor- how we imagine Sweden. <laughs> Yeah, because I was just like, this makes no sense like that, you know, that you would let me just like have a total breakdown and then I wouldn't be able to work for two years and I wouldn't pay taxes and I'd be on like social benefits. I was like, the maths doesn't add up. Oh, um, I'm really sorry to hear all this. It's um, it's fine now and I'm glad I did it. Um, I mean, when I think about things I should have done differently, it's it's all like structural, like in I should have had a chapter outline before I started <laughs> like writing you know it's more yeah. like about like the handicraft and stuff and stuff that made the second book much easier to write and how is the football club doing today Asteriska? well they're they're doing okay they've had like financial problems back and forth um like originally because they spent a lot of money on like recruiting players um Instead of building them up, right, this was one of the things that one of the guys you spoke to was constantly complaining about. Because, I mean, they've got a few, uh, they've got a few internationals, certainly, that they produce, this football club, including Mikhail Ishak. And uh, Champman fans might remember Kennedy Bakisolu. Jim's uh, nodding, I think. I think. Yeah, he was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was kind of a <laughs> wacky guy um, who, yeah, 14 caps or something. So they definitely produced a few, a few players. No, they definitely have. But, you know, because I used to play like competitive volleyball and coach, I also know that when it comes to teams, you have to strike a balance because you want to be fair to like your base. So I would have players who'd been part of the club for years. Um, But then you need new talent, partly for like fresh blood, but also because like, you know, top level players will raise the game for everyone. Like the less strong players will learn from them. The tempo will increase. Um, So I understand the Sudis guy. It's a very difficult balancing game. Um, but the funny thing is, so like there's a Syriska, but there's also their, their like local rivals, Syrianska, who are also Orthodox Christians from the Middle East. And some people are like, we're basically the same people. We just use different terminology and they're total rivals and derbies are really like a bit crazy. I've been there. I quite like them. Um, but so I was giving a lecture in Sartalia and my police bodyguards were there with me and they still protect me when I, when I give lectures down there. And then after the lecture, these like three young men came up, came up to, to speak to me. And it turned out that one was a Syriska player and the other two were Syrianska players. And I was like, dude, what's happening? Like everyone knows that you should just like become one big club and that will sort out like your finances. And they were like, yeah, but you know, like the manager, like the board, it's just tons of old farts, you know, and they just can't even consider this. And like, they just, as they said, they're like, they just have to like retire and everything will, f-. he's like, we, I mean, our generation, we don't care. You know, I'm here with like, you know, they were rival teams. I was like, okay, so we're like talking five years. He's like, he's like, no, I mean, some of them are like really persistent. I mean, 10 years, but they have to retire. (laughs) So I think, I mean, there's solutions. I mean, they're still there. Um, I can't remember if they're in second division or third. Um, 
but I mean, they're definitely there and they definitely, and they have a lot of youth teams and um, they're, you know, really important for the young community. And Asyrianska has been trying to get more girls to play. Uh, I interviewed some of the, the girls. They were like, they were hilarious. They were like 10 and nine. And when I asked them about their favorite football player, they all said, oh God, the guy, I mean, they all referred to, oh, give me some famous footballer names. Messi. Yeah, they all, no, Messi. All these kids were like, Messi, Messi, Messi. <laughs> and I was just like, you know that there are female football Yeah, you need players? to tell them about <laughs> Lucy Bronze and Martha and all of these other people. Damn right. Yeah, and like, um, so, I mean, that's fascinating, but they're, they're trying. And, and I mean, I, I have huge fondness for this town. I think it's, I mean, like there's the harbor area, which is like turn of last century. That's really pretty. Um, it's very verdant. I mean, some people might think that like the word a beautiful industrial city is like a contradiction in terms, but it's just the, like the mix of like history and like modernity and vibrant industry and a situation. I mean, it's really beautiful. Like the, you know, it's on this canal um, connecting to a lake. Um, so, I mean, it's a really nice town. Oh, and well, I have to say Football Ramble presents our podcasts, take you places you never expect to go sometimes. And I think this is definitely no yeah. exception. Well, I'm. thank you for having me. It was really nice speaking to you. And I hope that people aren't too scared to visit Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can vouch for it from my own personal experience. It's a wonderful place. Um, and thanks again for joining us. Um, so, yeah, where, where should people go if they if they want to if they want to pick up your book or your books? The books are available online uh, from most major retailers. So just clickety click, uh, and then there is also a audio book, uh, which is on Audible. And uh, so, and I recorded it myself, so you can hear me pretending to be gangsters and cops. And- <laughs> Dis- disgruntled football fans and and uh, victims of extortion and um, reporting live from the trial and one of my readers was like the chapter about the trial was really boring I'm like yeah because trials are <laughs> they are boring that's the entire point <laughs> oh and well thank you so much for joining us today on the book club it's been an absolute delight Anton Kuss's book, Follow Fucking Orders, out now with Pitch Publishing. We'll post a link to where you can get it on our socials as well. Uh, it really is an incredibly gripping read and something, yeah, we didn't expect to necessarily be talking about on Book Club. But I've absolutely loved. Let us know what we should read next. I'm at KVL Mason Jim. I'm at Jim Campbell TFR. And we'll catch you next time for another episode of Book Club on Football Ramble Presents. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network.